to jump right in and introduce Mr. N. And um, I was, he and I actually met for the first time this morning. And uh, we just feel, I would say that I feel like he's family already, which is awesome. And that's what happens when the Lord does something. And uh, one of the things that uh, Pastor JB called me up. Y'all know Pastor JB is one of my mentors, and he called me up. He said, I have a friend of mine that's in town, and I want you to consider having him there at Boomerang on Wednesday night. And uh, I said, I'd be happy to, especially if you're recommending, uh, recommending him. And I you know, sought the Lord on it, felt right in there, had peace in my heart over that. And uh, it was just awesome. He was a pastor for 18 years. And then he, uh, want, he moved on to the place where he served two terms in their parliament, very much like our Congress. He served two terms in uh, their parliament. And right now he's running for a Senate seat. And uh, we're just believing with you to get that in Jesus' name. And uh, so he's running for that. So he's like big stuff, you know. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome. And he's going to bring it. I mean, he's going to bring it. <laughs> I'm just messing now. <laughs> Come on up and let's... Well, this is Mr. N. Britza. My pleasure to meet him and my pleasure, our pleasure to have him. He was with Pastor JB this weekend or this past weekend. He's going to be with Pastor Chris DeChaccio this weekend. And then next weekend, he's going to be at EMIC uh, at the church with uh, Kenneth Copeland Ministries and uh, speaking and minister there. He was telling me today, uh, some of y'all know Pastor George Pearson's there. He said, that's my best friend. And I said, glory to God. That blesses me just hearing that because Pastor <laughs> George is a... Um, his heart, you can yes. just tell his heart. I don't know him like you do, but his heart comes through in everything that I've ever seen him do. And that blesses me a lot. So it's wonderful. We just welcome you. Thank you. Be led and enjoy yourself. Appreciate sir. it. Yes, sir. I need that uh, yes, sir. corporate ground. Yes, sir. Yeah, you clap and we'll find out how whether you're happy about that afterwards. But um, Boomerang Church, I couldn't believe it. That's not a good statement of faith, but I was, I said, Pastor, are you sure? And then they were calling him Boomerang. I thought, no, nah, that's just far out. You know, when I, when I got out of school many, many years ago, um, my first job was a recreation officer for the Sport and Recreation Department of New South Wales, Australia. And um, I spent my first 18 months as an 18, 19-year-old um, as a recreation officer on camps for young people, secular, you know, public schools and stuff. And what was my job? I had to teach these kids how to throw a boomerang <laughs> and how to catch it. So every boomerang I threw returned and I caught it. So, you know, uh, when, you, when you talk about uh, naming your church boomerang, you know, it's pretty accurate. You know, you want people to come, yeah, but you want them to return. <laughs> and uh, it's very important that they return, so it's a good confession. But, um, no, it's been wonderful. And, um, you know, I've been preaching since I was 17 years old. And uh, so I've been pastoring for 18 years, my own church, but before that, I was pastoring in Baptist churches and then in a faith church. I was music minister and youth pastor. I was telling pastor today that um, by far 
say by far. By the far. people I enjoy ministering to by far the most are young people. Amen. By far. And one of the reasons is that they're not diplomatic. Yep. <laughs> I mean, if they don't like you, they just tell you. I mean, to your face. I mean, if they don't like you, they just walk out. I mean, you'd like to do that, but you're more polite. <laughs> and uh, I was just thinking, you know, uh, I met Pastor today and... Um, you know, when you pray to have someone come and speak and you have never heard them or seen them or you know nothing and you're trusting relationship, that's what you're doing. You're trusting relationship and you're trusting that you hear the Holy Spirit. You know, so I, I never met Pastor Nicole before and met him today. And, um, and when a pastor puts someone in front of his congregation, you want to believe that he's going to sow something that's worthwhile. He doesn't have to go pray and work afterwards after I leave, you know, or any person leaves. And I tell you what, there are horror stories all over the world of men and women who've come into a church and preached and caused more division and more heartache and more broken hearts. And, and you just, it's just, it just, you just sort of wonder, should you ever do it? So when a pastor allows someone to come up and take over the pulpit, I, I just never take it for granted. And um, I don't take this for granted because you're hearing me for the first time tonight. You don't even, you don't know nothing about me. <laughs> but you'll find out real shortly. Um, I'm going to give you a little bit of history, but I just wanted to thank Pastor because we've had a wonderful time. I've been listening to his vision. I've been listening to find out, does, does the man hear God? You want to know that your man of God hears God? <laughs> I mean, you do, you really do. I mean, you want to believe that when he says, God spoke to me. You, you've got to sit there and go, yeah, he did. Not go, I sure hope so. You, know, you want to believe that he did. Why? Because your lives depend on it. Your families depend on it. And that's why it's absolutely crucial. So I enjoyed hearing him and I was really delighted. I never said anything to him, but I'm saying it now in public. I was really delighted to hear him say that God spoke to him. Because that should be a daily occurrence. Amen. But it's not for a lot of people. They wouldn't know God's voice if they fell over it. And that's unfortunate. And um, it's not a pastor's fault. It's usually because people don't take time to sit before God. And we talked about a word today that I thought was pretty accurate. And that is, we're not hungry enough. And I thought, you've got to get hungry, you know that? You've got to get hungry. Because when you're hungry, you get desperate. And, you know, I was, um, I was, I, I don't, I, I don't, I'm not really on the net that often. I, I like to get on the net enough to get my email and get the news and that's it. And when there's trouble, I ask my 10-year-old son to help. And uh, they know stuff. It's not right. <laughs> I was daft, I reckon, until I was 17, you know. But, you know, these kids, they know a lot. And, and they know stuff. Oh, you know, and the flip, 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 it's all finished. <laughs> and, you know, after five days, I throw the thing in the bin. You know, so, um, but one thing is for certain is that what I'm going to teach you tonight, I believe will bless you. It will, it will um, confront you. Um, I, I don't give a rip if you disagree with what I'm saying. <laughs> I, don't, I don't care, you know. I'll tell you what I do care. I, I care if you go out not knowing or understanding what I said. 
I do care about that. So I speak plain. I'm not politically correct. Which, and that, um, that made my party nervous. Um, and uh, sometimes you just got to stand up, you know, to uh, even, even good secular people, you know, because they don't know stuff and they have agendas. And I can say things. I'm not here to speak politically, so I'm not going to do that. But, you know, when you've been in there for eight years and you've been right in the party functions and you go in there with your guns aimed at the opposition and then you finally, fight, you finally, to your horror, find out that the blokes on your own side are just as bad. And that's a real shock. And you need to know, I don't care which party you support, they're absolutely a bunch of mongrels, as we'd say down under. You know, they, they have their own agenda. They just want your vote. Yeah. And then they do whatever it is that their party wants to do. Yeah. All the more reason why you should know who your man or woman of God is that's representing you. I said yeah. man of God. Well, they should be, but you should know the person who's representing you. Now, do you know the word party hack? Yeah. Party hack? You know, that's the phrase we use. Uh, it must be an English term, but a party hack is someone who absolutely does nothing except what the party says. And that's how they get promoted. That's how they do stuff. They're a party hack. And that's about 98% of politicians. Party hacks. That's why, you, that's why I, I've got to tell you, I'm not speaking now from experience with authority. You're blessed to have your president. You know why? For no other reason than he's not a politician. My God, you got to... <laughs> I'm jealous of you. My God, I'm jealous because you know what? He's a businessman. He don't put up with nonsense. He just, and you know what? Here's the glorious thing. I said I'm not speaking politically and I can't help myself. But you know what? He, he doesn't follow bureaucracy. And bureaucrats think they know how to solve everything. And they don't. They're as daft and deaf as could be. And, and they, they, they actually counsel both sides. I could, I could talk about that, but, you know, you know, presidents come and go, administrations come and go, both sides come and go, Congress, your Senate, come and go, but the bureaucrats stay there. Oh, you can tell that that gets on me goat, can't you? I better get on with this. Because uh, what I'm going to share to you tonight, what I'll share to you tonight will determine if you're young and if you're old, it'll show you why you haven't been as successful as what you should have been. And there's nothing deep. There's nothing theological. And I'll be opening up my heart on some things and I'll be sharing to you my testimony because you don't know me, so you need to know a little bit about me. But first of all, let me just share um, that my parents were missionaries in Africa for over 20 years. And... Uh, I was conceived in Africa, but I was born in Australia. And then as a three-month-old baby, taken back to Africa, and I was brought up until I was six years old. Okay? So with those things in mind, and I'll go forward from there. In Proverbs, um, I've got two scriptures for you. Um, you just have to... If We're recording this, so you, know, I just, you just need to sit and listen. Don't take notes. You won't hear anything. Uh, but Proverbs 24.10... In the message, in the message translation, it says, if you fall to pieces in a crisis, there wasn't much to you in the first place. It's a dreadful verse. Oh, I don't like it. <laughs> because it really, it really 
it sort of tells you where you're at. You know, so you, if you fall apart when things hit your house and things hit your life, and we, you know, if you fall apart, it means there wasn't much to you in the first place. So what are you belly aching for? You're weak. That's what the now don't 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 throw rocks at me. All right, but but the Bible says you're weak. Don't get fussed. Just say, oh, that's me. I'll change. That's all you have to do. All right. Here's four other translations of that same verse. If you are weak in times of trouble, that's real weakness. Hey, 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 hey. Are you happy? Hey, hey. <laughs> if you give up when trouble comes, it shows that you have very little strength. <laughs> I would make you happier, but I'll just get this stuff over and done with and then we can go forward, all right? And I love this from the Living Bible. It says, you are a poor specimen if you can't stand the pressures of adversity. Huh. This, this, is not, this, is, this is not the kind of verses that make people happy. You know, these are verses that slap your face and tell you, listen, mate, if you're not doing it right, it's because you're weak. There's no character strength to you. Now, I'm going to tell you why you don't have character strength in a minute. But the last one, uh, and I've never heard of this translation, but it said, if you fall apart during a crisis, then you weren't very strong to begin with. Hey, 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 let's get to something better. I mean, those, you know, you can tell no matter what crisis of life, if you fall apart, number one, number one, you didn't, really know Jesus. You just had what we call in our circle mental assent. That's all. But you didn't know him personally. You know, we, we were singing a worship song there and all I could, there was lots of words, but the one that came to my heart was um, that Jesus heals the broken heart. I mean, he really does. And you know what? People, and I'm, I'm yeah, I, I haven't said these phrases because I've been in the political realm for 15 years. So, you know, you sort of, when you've been preaching, you, you get the church lingo. And then all of a sudden you're in the world in politics and you're representing, I represented 35,000 people. And all of a sudden, and none, you know, uh, less than 3% believe what I believe. And yet I'm their representative. Um. I'll use your terminology so you don't, uh, you, you won't know my uh, uh, political thing. But I was a conservative, so I was a Republican who ran in a Democratic seat that said couldn't be won, had never been won by a Republican, and I won it with three hundred by three hundred and fifty-six votes. And I sort of, to my in my heart, I never said this out loud, but in my heart, I thought serves yourself right. I won it by three hundred, you know. <laughs> But when we had the second election, um, the second time, I won by over 3,500 votes. And, you know, those were, quote, quote, they were democratic people. But you know what? They hurt. They absolutely hurt. They live in the dirty, rotten here and now. And they needed to have a, a, a member that represented them that cared. Not about what the party did, because the party couldn't give a rip about the people in my electorate. Couldn't, they don't care about them. 
And I tell you what, I, don't, I can't tell you. how I can't put it in a book because it's not right. And I'm even concerned to say too much in case it goes over the air and someone finds out about it. And I did that at Eagle Mountain in July last year and I went home and I was on the front page. <laughs> and, I, and I was just sharing my heart to people. You know, I didn't even think I was doing anything wrong. But, um, so you never know. But let me tell you that, um, you know, when you go into people and their hearts are broken and they think you don't care. And um, uh, as a politician, you're not allowed to pray for people. So you can't lay hands on people and pray for them. So I was a little bit more sneaky. Um, I think I'm the only politician in the world that had a grand piano in his office. So, you know, when people came, I'd play. I'd say, before you go, let me just sit here and play. Now, don't get religious on me. Don't get religious on me. Oh, you have to play a hymn. You have to play a worship chorus. No, 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 I didn't do that. I'll give you an example. I had an uh, elderly couple in their mid-70s, late 70s, Italians. And um, they were coming to me because of a fence issue. Now, you don't have lots of fences here, but in Australia, I mean, it's dreadful. But, you know, fences are your little block. And they had an issue with the other fence and the local council drove everybody nuts. I don't know what your local council's like, but it was the biggest issue. Fence issues are the biggest issues that cause troubles between neighbours. And these people had come and they were, they were talking about a fence. And they, both of them, you've got to remember, they're in their late 70s. They're not dealing with these issues as easy as young people. And they were just coming, bearing their heart. And I'd, I spoke with them and I dealt with it. And right there and then I dealt with it, rang the mayor and just got onto it and dealt with it. And they were getting ready to leave. And I went, oh, no, no. I said, before you leave, let me play for you. Well, see, I had the grand piano behind my bookcase, so they didn't even know I had a piano there. A grand piano, of all things. You know? So they sat there, and I'm going around to the piano thinking, what am I going to play for these people? Well, that's the reason I told you about no hymns. What I played was a great old Italian song called Arrivederci Roma. You may not know that, but my age did. And so I played in a real ballad, nice ballad, you know, and I was praying while I was playing. And I just played a Rivadechi Roma. A Rivadechi is goodbye, see you later, you know. And um, when I finished, I came around and both of them were in absolute tears. And I thought, oh, my God, I've made it worse. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, I began to apologise. And they said, oh, no, Mr. Richie, you don't understand. Uh, three months ago, we went home to say goodbye to my mother, who's still alive. And it was the last time I was going to see her. She was 92. And as we were waving goodbye, walking towards to get on the plane, she said, arrivederci, Frank. So, you know, there I was. I played that song not knowing what it meant to them. Well... They forgot all about the fence. All of a sudden, their hearts were like, wow. And so what did they go? They went around and told everybody, you've got to go meet our member. <laughs> so it was good advertising. And um, I, that's about the fourth time I've told that story because I did tell it to my party. And you know what they said? Oh, that's a good political move. I thought I didn't do it for flame and politics. I did it because it was right. People needed to, to hear that. So where did all this come from? Where did this compassion come from? Of course, of course it came from Christ, 
all right? But you know what? You learn these things from your parents. Okay, that's good preaching. But anyway, um, in Ephesians chapter uh, 6, and this is my real verse for you tonight, it says, children, what you should do in union with the Lord is obey your parents. I thought children would really love that. Uh, and, and you know what I love about the Bible? It doesn't explain why. It just says because this is right. That's it. That's it. No other reason because it's right. You know what? Um, we've just legalised. I hope this goes over. I hope the papers pick this up correctly, what I'm about to say. Um, um, our government falsely um, did a survey and uh, we've made same-sex marriage legal. Uh, I just don't get it. You know, they made it legal. And uh, I had a strong difference of opinion conversation with somebody and I said, it's legalised but it will never be right. I said, two and two will always be four. If you legislate it to be five, it may be legal that it's five, but it'll never be right. It will always be four. And that's the same with same sex. Now, listen, I had, I had homosexuals and lesbians in as my constituents. And as people, it's my responsibility to look after them. It's my responsibility to love them, take care of them, and do whatever what Christ would do. But I don't agree with what they do. And when that people were having a go at me about, about that issue, sir, I just said, hang on. Every, I, well, I, I think I said every week because I wanted to say every day. I said, every week someone in my electorate has an affair. And I still love them. And if our party made and said, our party says affairs are all right, yeah, well, <laughs> how many husbands were about to see out of their left eye for three weeks? You know, because you, it just wouldn't work. It's not right. Even if people do it, doesn't mean it's right. So here we go. I love it. The Bible just says, you obey mum and dad. Why? Because it's right, Jack. That's it. No, no, there's no question. There's no, it's because it's right. The world doesn't like it. You know why? Because the world doesn't like absolutes. But it's absolutes that protect you. It's absolutes that cause you to grow and mature and make strong and wise decisions. Goes on to say, honour your father and mother as this is the first commandment that embodies a promise so that all may go well with you and you may live long. Now, you know what? I love that. When, I, when my first two boys, um, I've remarried and I've got a little fella. He's 10 years old. Now, I'll keep you young. Boy, I tell you what. And, uh, but my first two boys... Um, I used to tell them, you know why you're a baby? Because you need to live long <laughs> as I give them the rod. I can't, we can't do that today, you know. If you give your children the rod today, you, know, you go to jail and they call that child abuse. And instead, you put them in the corner and give them some little, and they sulk in the corner, anger festers in up. It doesn't get, it does, there's no outlet. What I loved about giving the rod, and, and it hurt, and it's true when you know, parent, uh, as, when you're a child, you don't believe your mum and dad. But when you've got children, then you go, "Oh, mum and dad was right." Uh, and when it, when we said it hurts us really to give you the rod. I mean, and if you do it correctly to correct children correctly, 
you can't correct a child who doesn't believe they've done wrong. That actually causes rebellion. So, you know, what I had to do with my boy, especially my second fella, he'd bring his lawyer in. When he'd done something wrong, he'd bring his lawyer in and I'd be there. And, but I used to, it, it was unfair, but there's nothing fair about using the name of Jesus. I'd just say, all right, son, I've got the word. Now you tell me from the word that what you did wasn't right or, you know, or whether it was right. And I'll submit to that. And I'll show you from the word that what you said was wrong and, and why I need to correct you. Well, he'd, he'd put up an argument for at least 15, 20 minutes trying to get out of it. I'd just sit there and let him go. And in the end, he'd go, oh, you're right, Dad. Bless his heart. Bless his little darling heart. And you know what? I never, ever had to grapple him and hold him still and all that kind of stuff to give him the rod. No, no, no. When he knew that he had done wrong, he'd just put his hand on the bed and stick his little butt out. And then I had to exercise faith to then give him the rod because he was receiving it with humility because he knew that what he'd done was wrong and when he'd start crying I'd cry and we'd both cry together you know and and uh, I remember pastor um, uh, in the church that we were I became principal of the school and the the boys were showing disrespect to the uh, female teachers so they put me in charge (laughs) <laughs> I straightened it out in three months. But this is how I did it, all right? Those 15-year-old boys, I brought them into my office. And, uh, and I didn't give, there was no jury, but I had to tell them what they did was wrong. Do you realise that what you did was wrong in, in, in sassing the teachers? Yes. Well, I'd give them three rods and then break open a can of Coke. You know why I did that? Because once the correction was given, It's finished. We're not holding nothing anymore. It's finished. You're finished. And I remember the pastor's son came in because he was disrespectful and little little upstart, 15-year-old <laughs> little fella, he tried to pull rank. He really tried to pull the rank. He said, you won't give me the rod. He said, because my dad's the pastor. So I gave him six. <laughs> and he jumped around my flaming office like a kangaroo. And... Uh, And then we opened up a can of Coke. You know why I did that? Because he shouldn't go out of my room holding anything against me. And nor should I be holding anything against him because correction has been given and he's now free. Now, where do you learn that? Now, if parents haven't told him that and taught him that, rebellion comes. So in the Amplified, Amplified, all right, here we go. Cool, take a deep breath, especially if you not being very good to your parents. This will be, this will hurt. So just say, I love you, Pastor Britzer. Yeah, most of you said that by faith, but that's okay. It says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. That is, accept their guidance and discipline as his representatives. That hurts, I tell you. That hurts. That's, it's good, it's good scripture, but that hurts because you have to, my dad's not even born again. It's got nothing to do about being born again. Yeah, I thought that would throw you a bit, but that's okay. You know, mum and dad are the authority over their children, right? So it says, as his representative, once again, 
for this is right. There's no argument here. There's no comeback. There's no, what do we do? And then it says, why? Because obedience teaches wisdom. Wow. Um, You know, um, I can't remember the scripture, Pastor, because I haven't been preaching for 15 years. This is the third time I've preached in 15 years. Um, But there's a scripture that says about God that um, he only corrects those he loves. So now I'm going to say something that will really hurt if you're a parent. If you don't correct your children, you're deceiving yourself if you think you love them. Now, I know you call that man pastor. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, uh-oh, it's right. <laughs> it's coming. A big two-before's coming, so get ready, okay? I know you call him pastor, but do you call him pastor when he corrects you? Yep. Yes. See, that's the rule. If he corrects you, then he actually must love you because I know what it's like. There's more pain in preparation to correct you than anything else. Why? Because there's the risk of you saying, well, get lost, mate, I'm leaving. And the majority of pastors don't go down that path. They'd rather stay with that rebellious attitude in church than actually give correction. Yeah, Yeah, it's good. uh, For obedience teaches wisdom and self-discipline. We don't have a lot of discipline. We have a, I don't know what your young generation is now, but I see it in my boy and I love my boy. He, 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 I tell you, he's, he's gorgeous. And I was after a girl, but God gave me Samuel. Now Samuel, up, up until he was five, everyone used to say, he's beautiful. And I accepted that. I accepted that until he was five. Then I stepped in and said, right, that's enough. He's a boy. <laughs> And I'll accept handsome. Don't you call my son beautiful? That's what you call little right. girls. Yeah, amen. Yeah, it's good preaching, but that's yeah. true. So I said, say he's handsome. And he is a handsome little fella, you know, and he really is. But you know what? Um, how will he learn self-discipline if he doesn't learn it from me? He has this attitude even now of entitlement. I don't know whether your young people have that here, but it's, it, it's, it's like a generation of, it, it belongs to me. Yeah. You know, nothing belongs to you, Jack. You know, whatever you got, I give to you. You know, but school, you know what, governments, and I know, governments in my country, and I'm sure they've done the same here, governments, governments have taken authority away from parents and have taken authority away from schools. Yeah. So that your children, you think your children, there was a time where you could go to school and those, par- those school teachers would back you up. Yes. You know, when I was a small boy, uh, I was in, when I was in grade four, my parents invited my teacher home for dinner. <laughs> if I could speak in tongues, I would have. But I was a Baptist. And uh, we didn't do that. And, you know, I can still remember my dad saying to my teacher, if my son gives you any trouble, you give him a wallop and I'll give him another one when he comes home. And you know what? He did that. And you know what? We never went crying. Oh, you know what? You know, my life is a mess because my teacher gave me a belt. 
my life's a mess because dad gave me a hiding. I'm going to sue my dad if he was alive. I, I, I was going to put an ad in the paper. I've turned out decent and I'm annoyed. Because my dad gave me the rod and gave me a hiding. Or he, he just picked up whatever he could. <laughs> Do you remember these things, man? You'd run around the yard like a chook. And he, or chook, chicken, you know. You know, one of those. And you'd run around and he'd catch you and hit you with one where he could put his hand on. Now, now, he didn't slap me around the face like some parents do, and that's not right. You know, God gave you a butt for a reason. And uh, one of the reasons was to hit it really well and to make it sting so that you'd remember. And if you read Proverbs, it talks about don't despair because of the blueness of a wound. Oh, no, not our governments today. Oh, you poor people. You put a little mark on a little child and you wound them. Oh, they got scars. You got scars. And, you know, we've got people that murder people and they get off. Why? Oh, because I was scarred when I was a little boy and I, I scarred nothing. It's called consequence. You take a life, your life gets taken. It's, it's not easy. That's not comfortable stuff, but it's true. All right. Anyway, let me go on. Honor. Honour, esteem as valuable and precious your parents. Valuable and precious. I'll get to it, hopefully. I'm, I'm a hopeless romantic, which is not good for a politician. But I'm absolutely hopelessly in love with my wife. I can't. You know, we've been married 40 and a half years and I keep thinking it's going to be over soon. I don't keep thinking it. I just sort of think, you know, every time, um, and I realise we've got young people here so I'm trying to be discreet, but every time I go to bed and I slip into bed and I think, my gosh, I'm lying in bed next to this woman. I, I, I just, I get a kick out of that. <laughs> she doesn't even have to do nothing. She can be asleep. <laughs> But I get a kick out of it, you know, and uh, and uh, and I'm I'm just like so, you know. When I when I'm putting my boy to bed now, my boy's ten, but you got to remember I've been doing this now for as old as he's been able to understand. So when I put out the light, or, and I sit down and I talk with him and I pray with him, uh, I say to him, you know, son, his name's Samuel. I go, Samuel, you know, I, I love you more than I, I thought. I never thought that I could love a boy like I love you. But let me tell you something. You don't come close to the love I have for your mother. You don't even come close. So don't even think about it. Because <laughs> you know why? My little boy, he wants to marry his mother. <laughs> now, little boys should do that. But they should grow out of it too. <laughs> All right. But, but little, little boys love their mamas and that's right. And, 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 and I, I pursue that. Uh, uh, Penny and Samuel fight like cat and dog, but you can't come between them unless you don't value your life. (laughs) So you've got to honour, esteem as valuable and precious your father and your mother and be respectful to them. Why? Because this is the first commandment with a promise. So that it may be well with you and that you may have a long life on this earth. So, you know, I didn't have, I'm one of six children. I didn't have much to do with dad, but 
but the incidents that I remember the most are strong incidents that developed my character, even though I was a little fella. Now, the first one was when I was seven years old. Well, I told you that I, I was in Africa and I came back as a six-year-old. Well, I came back and I was distraught. I didn't know, you know, I, I didn't know this. My parents have told me this. They said, you were unconsolable for at least three to four months. They couldn't work out what's wrong with Ian. Well, you know what they found out? Well, number one, I couldn't speak English. All I could speak was the African tongue, Chinyanja, which was a Zulu tongue. And, and so I was just speaking Chinyanja as a little fella. And, and uh, I couldn't speak any English. And then they suddenly realised, they found out what the real issue was. I'd found out that I was white. <laughs> I thought I was black. <laughs> I can laugh about it now. Wasn't funny then. Wasn't funny then. I, I mean, I thought I was black. And then all of a sudden, I come, I come and I find out, dang, I'm white. <laughs> now, as I, as I began to develop, uh, it didn't take long to work out. I was definitely white, couldn't, had, couldn't dance, had clapped, on the, <laughs> clapped on the on beat instead of the off beat, so definitely not black. So, you know, it didn't take long. But, you know, uh, those things, those, those things uh, get into you. But then I remember we were in a country church and uh, church finished and we were all at home and I'm sitting on, uh, we called him Uncle Walter, but you call everybody uncle. And he had me on his lap and I was seven years old and he said, young Ian, he said, have you accepted Jesus Christ into your heart yet? And I mean, as quick as a flash, I said, oh no, but when I'm as old as my dad, I am. And he said, you don't have to wait till you're as old as your dad. Now, don't, don't tell me that children don't, know or think about stuff. You know, my little seven-year-old brain and heart could not get that out of my head. I'm thinking, can I actually become a Christian now? Well, I, see, I didn't do it straight away. I mean, for three or four days. I even went to school. I mean, I'm in grade two. Little seven-year-old thinking, am I allowed to accept Jesus? Am I really? I'm only seven. Am I really allowed to do that? Well, by Friday, by Friday, that was it. I could hardly keep still in school. You know, when Friday finished, now remember, I'm one of six children. So my four older siblings are at another premises and my little sister, she hadn't started school yet. So when the bell went, man, I got my bag and I took off and I ran all the way home about a mile. I would say three quarters of a mile to a mile. I ran all the way home because you know why? I was going to go to dad and say, that's it. You lead me to Jesus. I run into the house and my father is kneeling on the kitchen floor with his arms said, Ian, I've been waiting for you. He said, you're going to accept Jesus, aren't you? And I ran into my father's arms and he led me to Jesus. And then I, I, as, soon as, he, as soon as he finished praying, I went to the whole street went up and down to every shop, told them what had happened. I didn't care. Back then in the 60s, no one's going to tell a kid, get lost, shut up. You know, they just, they just had to listen, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and, and they just said, you're a good little fella. But you know what? I went to school on the Monday and I started telling everyone at school. Now, the premises only went to grade three. So I started telling everyone in school that I'd accepted Jesus. And I started leading kids to Jesus. I knew what to do now. So I started leading kids to Jesus left, right and centre. I mean, 
who knows how many. But I remember by Wednesday, uh, I, I was in class and Mrs. Jones. Now, I reckon there's a teaching anointing on the Jones family around the world because there's always a Jones teaching somewhere. <laughs> all right. So Mrs. Jones comes in and she says to my teacher, um, I, I need to see Ian Britzer. I thought, oh, my God, I'm in trouble. She's a cranky thing. And um, so I go outside and Mrs. Jones says, Ian, um, I've, got a, I've got a young boy in my class and he's just a real mess and I want you to do to him what you've done to all these other kids. Wow. So you know what? I took that kid to the lunch shed, led him to Jesus, and I went back to class and he changed. Amen. So that was a supernatural experience. And from then on, my dad started saying and saying, Ian's the one that's going to preach the gospel. When you're a teenager, you don't enjoy that that much. But, you know, every time we were introduced to anybody, he would say, this is Murray, Ross, Joyce, Vivian, Ian, and he's the one that's going to preach the gospel, and Karen. I heard that all my life. He introduced me to every single person that way. These are my children, Murray, Ross, Joyce, Vivian, Ian, and he's the one that's going to preach the gospel, and Karen. I mean, what, cho- what chance did I have? But you know what? There was an influence there. And Dad was a, a wonderful influence. And he, was, he influenced me in practical things. And I remember I was 15. I hadn't woken up yet. I hope your dots know what I mean when I say that. Hadn't woken up yet. Didn't know that there was girls around. So I was still asleep. Well, there's a doctrine right there. Our boys need to stay asleep till Jesus wakes them up, all right? But that's a story, all right? That's another story, all right? And you girls wake up a lot earlier than us boys, but you need to leave us alone. <laughs> leave us alone, all right? Anyway, so... Ah, <laughs> oh, do you? Thank you, Jesus. All right, so I'm 15, right? I don't know nothing, right? But I tell you what, my sisters, man, especially my, my second elder sister, whew, now ladies, I'm going to say something, but you just stay cool and, and keep your rocks in your pocket, all right? <laughs> Women are gifted with their mouth. They can talk like nothing else. <laughs> and I think God planned it that way, you know, and there's a reason that I'll talk about that later. But, but Vivian could talk and she could cut you in half with her mouth. With her verbal. And you know, as, as a boy, as a young teenager, you know, 15 year old, my sister was 17, I mean, she could, I mean, she'd bring you to tears with what she'd say with her mouth. Anyway, this one day, we were having a verbal argument, and man, I was winning. <laughs> and you know what? Felt good. So I went for the jugular. I was going, man. I was, and, and from out the back, Dad says, Ian, stop it. And I'm thinking, I ain't stopping nothing, man. I've got this girl on the run, <laughs> and I'm, I'm going to give her what for. So I'm, I'm really having a crack at her, and I'm really like telling, and, and, and she's not even responding. She can't, I don't know, I didn't know what it was. Anyway, I'm going for it, and then again, my dad says, Ian, stop it. And I'm going under my breath, stop yourself, you know, I'm going for this. And I kept going. Third time he called me and then he said, come here. I went, oh my gosh, okay. So I go to dad and he says, I don't want you to be picking on Vivian. And I said, 
how, how come you don't step in when she's picking on me? You know, I'm having this argument with my father. And then he, he said these immortal words. <laughs> he said, I don't want you picking on her because it's her time of the month. <laughs> well, I'm going, what the heck is he talking about? <laughs> so I just looked at him and said, what about my time of the month? <laughs> so so he, he did... He said what every good father says at that point. You all know what he said. I think it's time for you to speak to your mother. <laughs> so it really, it really did go over my head. So my mother was washing up at the time at the, dish, at the sink. So, you know, no dishwashers back then. We were the dishwashers, right? So... I grab a tea towel and I'm wiping up the dish and I tell mum what's happened. Well, she told me later, you know, when I'm adult and I'm a pastor in the church, she said, you don't know how often we laughed over that. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, my mum was a, what they call in Australia, a double certificate of nurse, which means she had a certificate for being a general nurse, but she also had a certificate for uh, being a midwife, which is very helpful on the mission field, as you would imagine. So anyway, I, I tell mum what's happened. And so mum's given me the nurse's rendition of what time of the month means. So I'm, I'm wiping up with real enthusiasm, you know, and I'm doing the dishes and mum starts going through this stuff and as she's going, I'm slowing. <laughs> and I'm going, oh my God, you know. Oh, oh Jesus, I didn't say that, but I wanted to. And I'm going, I can't, hold, oh, mum, that's enough. You know something? From that moment forward, I, I treated women very carefully. <laughs> now, you know what? You think about it and you think, you should. You should treat women carefully. You know, I, maybe I didn't. Well, actually, it was a good, I mean, it sounds, well, it was, I never shared that for years, as you'd imagine, because it's a bit embarrassing. But um, the point is, though, that that gave me an understanding of woman being the weaker vessel. Not weak as, as less than man, but just weak in an area where man has to be considerate. And I never knew that. So when it was revealed to me, all of a sudden, man, I just gave girls a wide berth. You know, it wasn't like just once a month. It was like period, you know. Oh, well, well that's not the appropriate word. <laughs> oh, jeez, let me get on to the next point. <laughs> Gee, okay. So, next year I turn 16. Yeah, I know. It's getting hot. Well, have you got the air conditioning on here? <laughs> so, I turn 16. Well, I'm the organist in church. It's a Baptist church and I'm the organist, right? So, I'm playing the organ this Sunday, right? And I look at, you know, I'm looking at all the girls and sisters, right? You know, holy, holy, holy. Yeah, sister, yeah, right, yeah. Well, something happened during the week. But I don't know what happened. But I woke. Because the next Sunday I'm on the organ and I'm playing holy, holy, holy. And I'm going, I'm, I'm going holy, holy. I thought, my God, Jennifer looks pretty good today. <laughs> I play along a little bit more and I look at it and I said, gosh, what happened to Lauren? You know? And as I looked around, I thought, they're all great. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> they all looked absolutely outstanding. And I had no idea what had happened. But I had awakened. And once again, good old dad. See, parents don't miss stuff out too much. They, they see stuff, right? And they go. And obviously dad said, hmm, something's happened to Ian. <laughs> so I reckon him and mum talked, you know, and say, he took me aside. Now, I'm going to give you, I'm going to tell you what he said because it laid foundation for me for the rest of my life. And as counsel, quite frankly, you should give to your sons. All boys should know what my dad said because it was actually, it was very precious. Um, it sounds corny. Uh, I, I don't think I received it that well when he said it, but um, he took me aside and remember I'm 16. And uh, he said, you know, he knew that I'd awaken up and all the girls were looking cool. And, um, and he said to me, now listen Ian, he said, uh, girls are not apples on a tree to take a bite of and then discard. Wow. And you know, my immediate thought was, there's a lot of discarded apples at my school. <laughs> because you know what? The boys didn't care. They were, they were doing stuff with girls left, right and centre. And I was too scared. You know, and uh, my dad, I, it was a, you know what, I'd never had a girlfriend. Doesn't mean I didn't want one. I was just too scared to have one. And also, I just thought, or, you know, especially that experience with, um, my, you know, what mum shared to me about women and, and young girls, it was like, oh my gosh, you know what, you, women are precious. And I never thought about Christians. I just thought women, period, girls, period. It was like, they're precious. Be, be careful. Now, I, I joke about it, but um, I didn't realise, you know, I became like father confessor of high school. You know, all the girls would come to me with their problems and talk about what the guys, and the guys would come to me as well. So it was like, it was like that I could be trusted because I wasn't going for anybody. Um, very un, it's very unusual in that sense to not do that. You know, you like them, but you, you don't go forward. And, and many years later when I was ministering to young people, God gave me a nugget, which I think is good for you parents to teach your young people, especially, or anyone who's not even married yet or is eligible for marriage. And that is you don't... Now, I've never heard anyone preach this. Uh, God gave this to me. You don't qualify for a relationship until you've passed the test of friendship. Let me say that one more time. You don't qualify for a relationship until you pass the test of friendship. Now, I look back on now and think, it's a beautiful word. Now, in America, do you use the word girlfriend and boyfriend? Yes. Is that? Now, if you take that word for what it is, it's outstanding. You should have lots of girls who are friends. I reckon my understanding of women would have risen greatly if I had a lot of girls who were friends. You know what? Because they would have yapped in my ear. But they would, have, they would have taken the fear away and they would have used, I call it the gift of talking, but they would have taken the fear of expressing ourselves and would have been able to share. And I would have been able to have a greater understanding of myself but also to express myself. 
Um, girls, uh, they may not want to really say that, but a lot of men don't talk. And uh, I tell girls, and I've said this all over the place, and I'll say it again tonight for those young girls and single girls who are here tonight, um, if you don't know how to hear the Holy Spirit and how to hear his voice in preparation for marriage, uh, watch how that young man, listen to that young man, see how he talks about his mother. In your presence and in her presence. How does he talk to his mother? Because how he talks to his mother and how he talks about his mother is what he's going to do to you. So if you marry that dude and he's a, he, he doesn't respect his mother, he ain't going to respect you. And it's a general good rule to just, you know, teach your children. So dad was absolutely instrumental. Now, I'm sharing these things because when I was 21, he died. And uh, I'm going to share something that's a little bit, and, and I'm beginning to close. That'll give you some hope. Um, <laughs> I, I, um, I used to like, I used to like, still like girls. But I just figured, why go like a girl and ask her out and then get, try to get mum and dad's blessing? Why would, why would I do that? Why, why not I get mum and dad's blessing first? <coughs> Then ask the girl. Is this too deep? That's good. So, you know, I'd go to my dad and I'd say, I'd like so-and-so. And And he'd go, oh, Ian. Uh, I knew straight away I struck out, you know. And and you know what my dad, this is what my dad would say. He'd say, there's a call of God on your life, Ian. You just can't go have any girl. And I'm thinking, I don't know nothing about this call of God business. I just want a girl. <laughs> and you know why I wanted a girl? Nothing deep. Everyone else had one. And I just figured if everyone else has got one, I'd like one myself. Now, I wouldn't know what I was going to do with her. But, you know, I just wanted one because everyone else had one. How deep is that? You know, that may sound foolish, but you'll find that a lot of young people, even here today, they just have it out of peer pressure. Well, that's what we do when we're 16 or uh, even younger. Yeah, my boy's 10 and the girls are on him already. Yep. Right. And it's like, stay away from my boy. You have to mess with me, let alone his mother. You know? So, you know, I kept bringing these girls to my father and, um, and I think I brought about seven and he said no to everyone. And every time he said it, he kept saying, there's a call of God on your life, Ian. You just can't have any girl. You've got to have someone that understands and cares and whatever have you about your life and whatever have you and, and, and the call of God. <laughs> so you know what? I, I said something that I, I'm going to tell you this is not, now this is not right because I'll tell you why. But what I said, and there's a different way to do this with your parents, right? But I said to my dad, you said no to, I think I brought about seven girls like that to my dad and he said no to everyone. And you know, after a while you sort of think, my God, I'm never going to... Never going to see any girl, you know, this way. And in the end, I said, I've brought seven girls here, and you said no. And he said yes. And I said, have you seen one? Well, I thought that was a pretty common sense question, actually. I thought that was pretty cool. I'm tired of bringing all these girls and him saying no. What about if mum and dad have actually seen one? Well, dad said yes. Yeah, I have, in fact. And I'm like, oh, I'm all ears. Hallelujah. Now, I never said that, but that's what I was thinking. And because uh, I was Baptist, you don't say hallelujah. So anyway, um, uh, Dad said, um, 
if young Sharon... Now, I'm living in Sydney and Sharon was living in Perth and uh, that's like New York and Los Angeles. Wow. Right? So Dad says, yeah, if young Sharon... And I'm going... See, I'm going through the list of all the girls I know. And I'm going, Sharon, I don't know Sharon. And I went, you're not talking about Sharon in Perth. Four and a half thousand miles away. <laughs> you remember I'm 17 or 18, whatever it is, and I'm, and I'm thinking... Oh, yeah, way to go, Dad. You know, that's safe. You know, she's, she's flaming across the other side of the country. And I can't do nothing, you know. And uh, so anyway, um, he said, no, we believe she's the right one. Huh. I said, is that right? And um, now, I, I got to, because of time, I can't go through it, but we, we ended up... Um, I don't ever think I ever asked her to marry me because she loved my dad. She got born again under my dad's ministry when we were in Perth and then we moved to Sydney. And she got born again under my dad's ministry. She loved my dad. You know, my dad was a fourth member of the Godhead. So, you know, when he spoke, it was God speaking. Who wants to mess with that? So, you know, we married. I don't think I ever asked Sharon to marry me. I just said... When's a good date to get married? It's not very romantic, <laughs> is it? Anyway, um, we, we got married, but let me tell you something really important. We, we had no passion. There was no passion between us. We were two good kids. We were really two wonderful kids, but there was no passion. So, you know, you want to marry the right person, but you know what? Passion helps. So we got married and my dad married us and I knew it was a mistake through the whole wedding ceremony. And we went away on what was supposed to be a honeymoon and it, it, we didn't do nothing. I think the, I think the, the, um, I think the English word is that we didn't consummate the marriage because we just knew it was a mistake. We, we, and I said to she was in agreement. She had no... She, Oh, what's a good word? I, I didn't think she was hot. Is that good? Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Huh? Oh, pastor's just had a stroke. He, I better pray for him. All right. See, I, I had no, there was nothing. I, Norval Hay said your liver's got a quiver when nothing was quivering. And, um, and I thought, this is a problem. So I said, uh, I said, you know, I'll tell you what to do, Sharon. I said, we'll go home. And I said, I'll go to my father and we'll annul the marriage. And she said, that's a good idea. And I said, I was just scared of my dad. Because, you know, he'd been right most of the time. He was a good man. But it was, this, we, it was wrong. And I'll tell you why. So um, we went home. We, we, we just had a good time two weeks. We just, but we were just two good kids. We're just kids. We're 21 years old. What do we know? Nothing. You don't know nothing when you're 21. You think you do, but you don't know nothing. Amen. And if, if, if love wasn't there, you would never get married. That's why love's outstanding. When you fall in love, it's outstanding, but you don't think straight. <laughs> and you're not supposed to think straight, otherwise you'd never get married. <laughs> right? And passion is important, but we had none. And so I went back to tell my dad that, um, that it wasn't right and we should annul a marriage. And my dad went in hospital for a cartilage operation and he died. 
We're going, oh, heck, what do we do now? Well, I didn't know what to do. And um, it's a statement that I've used, but I don't think I thought about it then. But what there was a statement in the 70s, because we got married in the 70s, and there was a statement, and I think this is what we did. We, I think we made the decision, well, we've made our bed, we better lie in it. Now, I know we've got young people here, pastor, so I'm really, I'm really conscious about what I'm going to say right now. I'm going to say it real quickly and trust that you others will understand what I'm going to say, all right? Um, I never made love to my wife, but we had sex because we had two boys. Now, you can only make love to someone that loves you and that you love them. It's got to be two ways together. It's called passion. Because... Uh, as an animal, you can have sex with anything. Oh, excuse me, any woman. A man can make love with any woman. Better qualify that these days. So, um, <laughs> so uh, it was really important to understand that um, after our second boy was born, which was after three years, um, we, we, there was no intimacy for 20 years. And... Um, I never told anybody, and that was the best thing I ever did. Yeah. You know, because had I told somebody, the enemy would have made sure, because I was tailor-made for an affair. I reckon if some woman had to come along and said, I love you, I said, I believe you, <laughs> and that would have been it, you know. But thank God I never said anything, and that's a real secret right there, because I was believing for her to turn, but she never did. And uh, when she, she's the one that actually divorced. There was no third person. Um, and uh, that's wonderful, by the way, you know, because um, most, most people think divorce happens because you have an affair. Well, there was none of that, thank God. It allows you to, to sort of deal with a very difficult situation with honour, as, as honourable as that situation can be. So um, she divorced me to free me. That's what she said. Anyway, she goes out and I'm devastated. Because I believe in marriage. I believe in passion. Do you know that when Jesus Christ comes into your life, if there's no passion in the beginning, when Jesus Christ comes into your life, if there's no passion there, when, when you hit a hard place, you'll fall to pieces. But when you are in a hard place, it's your relationship with Christ that holds you steady. But if you don't have any relationship, you're history. You won't make it. And in your marriage, married people, in your marriage, if you didn't have the hots for each other, if you weren't passionate with one another, when your marriage hits a crisis, and every marriage does at some point, you've got to remember, you know what, I had the hots for that bloke. It's just misplaced and we've got to find it and get it back. But if you'd never had it in the first place, where do you go? Lust is, is not passion. And, you know, girls, let me speak something to you as a surrogate father. If you dress to, to, to get a man and your dress and what you show with your body is what gets him, that's what you're going to have to do to keep him. Yep. And I'm telling you something. It may not be good preaching. You may not hear this too much no, in good. a church. But uh, 
you know, there comes a time where the older you get in your marriage, you enjoy that, but you know what? You don't do what you did when you were 20 or 25 or 30 or 35. <laughs> I was 47, 48 years old, and I'd never fallen in love. And then I met Penny. I went to the third heaven. I visited there several times. And Penny, I showed a, photo, I showed a picture to Pastor Penny. Penny was 37 years old, modelling in Dallas. Modelling. Hey, yeah, 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 yeah. I can still, oh my God. You know, I met, I met, I met her and it's just as well I lived in Australia because we courted by email. So over a four-month period, we sent roughly six to 700 emails. And you know, when you're 48, you don't fool around. You just say, what you, this is me, this is where I am, this is what I need. You know, have you got it? I mean, it's, <laughs> you just get straight. Um, and she did the same. And when I came back, man, I knew, I, I knew this woman. <laughs> and I just thought, I've used this word, but it's a good word for young people to hear, courting is still in. Yeah. It's a wonderful process. And, you know, I fell in love with Penny and I got to court her. All those songs that I heard when I was a boy, they come alive. Now, I'm a Beatles boy, I'm a Beach boy, so all those songs, all those love songs, I tell you what, they, they were just wonderful. I'd be singing that King Cole. I was hopeless. I was 48, 47, 48. I was hopelessly in love. My friend George Pearson, he reckons they'd laugh at me because they reckon I was like a teenager. You know what? Because I'm in love. And you don't think straight. And Penny, you can't think straight. If I hold her hand, I wasn't thinking about Jesus. <laughs> can, we, can we sort of be real here? You know, the song I was thinking of wasn't Amazing Grace. <laughs> you know, I, I'd look at her and I'd just think, oh my, oh Jesus, thank you, thank you, thank you. You know, and um, anyway, you know, um, when we decided to get married, and you know, if you've been divorced, uh, you two, hold it. So, um, I'll come up here. Um, when, you, when, you, when you get divorced or something happens, most people, and, part, and people will counsel you, you shouldn't get married for a year. You know why they do that? They do that because they don't trust you. That's the only reason. You see, if you haven't done nothing with anybody in a year, yeah, you won't get pregnant. That's why they do that, by the way. It's nothing holy, but they do that. And I understand the wisdom of it, by the way. And Penny, um, Penny, Penny said, you know, uh, well, after I asked her to get married, I was trying to tell her, uh, I asked her to marry me in church. The pastor got me up to testify. We set it up. And I testified, and when I got up to testify... I asked her to marry me. And I couldn't even finish. She said, yes! I didn't even finish. She just about scared the daylights out of me. And, and, uh, and uh, anyway, we were going to get married, and, but it was within the year. And I said to her, this is accountability. This is what I learned from my mum and dad. This is what I learned from my father. I said, if any of my fathers in the faith, I had five, if any of them say that I have to wait, I'm going to wait because that's accountability. Yeah. What's the point of having accountability if you're not accountable? Yeah. Well, she wasn't happy. She's like, we're adults. And we were. It was like, 
why, why, why can't we get married? We know. And now, you know, and, uh, but I said, nah. I said, these are the men. And I didn't tell her because she was so stunningly beautiful. Man, I wanted her big time. I mean, not little time. I mean, I'm, I'm talking big time. I wanted her. And, uh, and I wasn't to read the Bible with either. So, you know, I just thought, if I don't have, if I don't have those fathers talking to me, I'm going to be in trouble. I will. So, you know, those men said, every one of them, Kenneth Copeland, Mark Barclay, Bob Nichols, Happy Corwell, and uh, George Peterson, they all said, yes, they all gave their blessing. And Kenneth said, get married, at, I, want, I want you to get married here at Eagle Mountain. And Bob Nichols after, and Bob Nichols quizzed Penny, not me. He put her through the grill like fathers put their prospective son-in-law through the grill. He just put her through, I mean, it was just like, I was crying, I was scared. You know, <laughs> poor Penny was just getting rattled. And uh, he, 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 when he finished, he said, I just got one more question. And I thought, well, you've already asked too many. And, uh, but he said, my last question is that I want to perform the wedding. So Bob Nichols did our wedding here and we got married here and um, I'm telling you, my gosh, did she look after me. She laughs. I can say this to you, but I'm, it's not that I'm embarrassed to say it. I just sort of think it's... She said, marrying you was like marrying a 48-year-old virgin. <laughs> and I'm telling you something. We've been married 14 and a half years and she initiates 90% of our intimacy. Now, most men dream about that. I think some even try to pray about it. But um, that tells me, number one, the passion is important, but her love for Jesus is strong. And our love for our son, and that's miraculous. That's another story altogether. But you know what? And we've had, the Australians have a beautiful term for, you know, I never heard my mum and dad shout at each other, so I've never, ever shouted at a woman, ever. Ever. Not even under duress. I've never shouted at a woman. And in my seminars, I used to say, you never shout at your wife unless the house is on fire. But I've never. I just feel to shout at a woman is demeaning. I yes. think that's, you should, you should never raise your voice to a woman. I don't care what anybody says. I, I believe the scripture says you, gotta, you can be firm, but you don't have to shout. And, um, and Penny is a typical Texan. They think they know everything. And I'm, well, I'm, I'm just, and my son, he was born in Lano, Texas, and he tells everybody he's a Texan. He doesn't even say he's American. He says, I'm a Texan. <laughs> so I think, yeah, he's a true Texan. So, um, but Penny, um, my love for Penny and what I do for her is that I serve her because that's how I saw my dad look after my mother. So I did what my dad did. So here, what I'm trying to tell you here is that where you are today is how you treated your mum and dad. All that has come to that. Everything that I come through and how I even look after and treat women. And I could tell you stories in politics and boy, stuff happens in politics. It's just dreadful. But it's my honour of women that my dad taught me and my mother and, and listen to them tell me about not only about the physical um, sensitivity of women but how to look after and my dad did it by example when I was 17 and 18 and thinking about getting married I wasn't thinking about sex I was actually thinking about what I was going to do to look after her what I, and 
okay, domestication is not a dirty word. And, and you know, I knew as a 17, 18 year old, whoever got me is going to get blessed. Not, not, not physically, but only because I knew that I was going to take care of that woman and I knew that that would be the case. And I wanted to encourage you here tonight that, that uh, Ephesians 6 verse 1 sets the foundation for everything you do in your life. And you know what? Um, it's really interesting, isn't it, that Jesus says, I'll be a, I'll be a father to the fatherless. Doesn't talk about mums, you know. Just talks about dads. And you know what? I found out that there's especially uh, both boys and girls are fatherless. And I found that even as a politician, I got to be real careful these days because you know uh, things people do and say or whatever. But girls are fatherless. And when I had, I've only had ever one fundraiser, and uh, at my fundraiser the the madame of the local brothel in Perth, the biggest brothel in Perth, the madame came to my fundraiser. And she brought 12 of her girls. That's hilarious. It wasn't at the time. But uh, um, they came to my fundraiser and I had over 500 people there, but the media only remembered them. And I went to uh, her afterwards and even now she, she's a dear friend. That's a hard life. And I said, why did you come to my fundraiser, Mary Ann? Why did you bring your girls to my fundraiser? She said, all of my girls know that you're 150% against what they do. But she said, everyone knows that if they were in trouble, you'd come and help them. And I thought, well, that's what Jesus would do. Jesus doesn't condone or support sin. But if you're in it, man, he loves you out of it. That's all he does. And that's what we're called to do. But you know what? If you haven't had an example, you have to have a Holy Ghost experience in order for your character to change. And that's rare. It shouldn't be, but it is. We learn from our mum and dad how we treat women, how we treat men. So that's what this is saying. It's saying, let me say it once again as I close. Children, obey your parents and the Lord. That is, accept their guidance. And you know what? As hilarious as it might have been, and my mum and dad laughed about it, I did accept their advice. I, I, I accepted their counsel and discipline as his representatives, for this is right, for obedience teaches wisdom and self-discipline. Honour and esteem them as valuable and precious. Do you know I have treated all my life women as valuable and precious? Even the, even the girls. Even the, the girls that, um, that, that I, at school, I treated as valuable and precious, number one, because I was still scared about what mum said. But on the other hand, um, I remember I was, um, did, you, did you have that song in the 70s? The only one who could ever reach me was the son of a preacher man. Yeah. You remember that? Well, you know, I, I was 18 years old in senior high school and I had five girls follow behind me for a mile from the school to the station singing, the only one who could ever reach me, yeah, was the son of a preacher man. Did you hear that, Britza? And I was scared stiff. (laughs) Hindsight is wonderful. I should should have turned around and said, well, come on, let's get going. (laughs) But I didn't. I was absolutely scared witless. And you may have called it persecution, but, you know, um, 
they talk to me now, of course. Uh, a couple of those girls came to my church, got born again, and they were in my church. Oh, we were, we, we were one of those pastors. I didn't know. They, they, we were one of those pastors. I go, oh, gosh, okay. Um, and, uh, but I just want to encourage you tonight to let you know it's practical. It's not big theology. How you treated your mum and dad is, is, is a pretty well a strong result of where you are here today. New young people who are here, don't underestimate. Don't underestimate the power of being obedient to your mum and dad and respecting them and honouring them because it sets you up for life. It sets you up for relationships so that you won't get hurt. And, and you know, God does heal the broken heart. And when, you were sing, when the praise team was singing that song, I was thinking, you know, most broken hearts are from relationships. And you know what? That's a, that's a hard thing to get over and prepare yourself for. And um, I, I'm one of those that God has blessed. And I'm a, you know, I, I love my wife enormously and, uh, and my son. And uh, I'd do anything for, for them, anything. I, know, I don't put anything in front of them. And I had to prove it to my wife. I just couldn't say it. I had to prove it, that she comes first. And you know what? When you put your family first, you'll find that God will always be first. It really will. And I think that um, it, these, these truths that I've given to you tonight and shared a little bit of my experience is so that I wanted you to know my background, where I come from, so that the truths that I'm teaching you, you'll know why he's teaching that. I wanted the young people, you know, when they're old enough and they may hear this again, they'll go, oh, is that what he meant? They'll go, ah, I, I remember hearing that. Well, you know, these are things that my dad was talking to me in the 60s and the early 70s. I thank God for it because that's what I did with my boys. I keep thinking, I, I want to quit and I'm, I'm going to share this one thing and then you can come on up, Pastor, all right? Um, when my uh, second boy, I've got three. Oh, I desperately wanted a girl. I thought I'd be a real good girl. When Penny, uh, that was part of the deal about marrying Penny, was that they, the, the, the pastor's wife that was matching us together said, I'm not putting you together about Penny unless you're willing to give her a child. I thought, I don't want to, I've got grandchildren. I don't want a flaming <laughs> baby. Jeez, you know. So I had to go think about it. But, um, you know, it was very important to me. And when she did get pregnant, and it's a miraculous story, I thought it was going to be a girl. So you know what I started doing? This is what, and this daft me. I was 54, around 55 at the time. And I'm thinking, I may die before she's a teenager. You know, I, I wasn't trying to be macabre enough and I was just trying to be practical. So you know what? Penny's pregnant. We don't know if it's a boy or a girl. We're hoping it's a girl. So I thought, well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do little videotapes on DVDs, you know, so that if I die... Then when she turns, well, when she, when she becomes a woman, she can put this little tape in from her dad. And so I, I did it, see, because of, of what my experience. And I said, Victoria, that's what we're going to call her if we had a girl. Victoria, if you're listening to this, no, if you've put this DVD on, that means you've just found out that you're a woman. So let me talk to you about, as your father, let me talk to you about what this means. And I shared about 15 minutes on that. And I did another one on falling in love. If you're listening to this, Victoria, you think you're in love. Well, let me talk to you about what that actually means. And so I did a couple, I should have stick it into a book. I could sell stuff, you know. But anyway, I wasn't thinking, we found it was a boy. 
yeah, but I found out that I have to, it's easy, I think it's easy because my boy loves his mum and at the right time I'm just coming into his line of sight. It's been mum for 10 years but now I'm just coming in there and boy, has he got some stuff coming his way. I'm ready to tell my boy, I'm ready to teach to him, to train him, to honour women. And uh, not too long ago, I think it was last year around September, I put him to bed and he said, Dad, turn the light off. He said, I've got two questions to ask you. I was getting nervous, you know. I thought I was going to do the dad trick and say, it's time to talk to your mother. But, um, you know, he was nine, so I figured I'm safe. So I switched the light off and he says, Dad, he says, why, why do we have to put girls first and why do we have to be kind to them? Well, first of all, I'm thinking, what the heck are you asking that question at nine years old? But on the other hand, I was ready, Pastor. I was ready to tell him why we put girls first and why they are very precious and why we need to be very careful with them, no matter how old they are. And so I'm putting into my boy the train of thought, no, let them be friends. Be friends. Befriend them. Don't allow anyone to be any special. Love them all, care for them all, and stand up for them and protect them. And he does that as a 10-year-old at school. And when he had his birthday party, he had more girls at his birthday party than boys. We were concerned that there were going to be no boys. You know, we were ringing up mothers saying, will you send your son, please? <laughs> you know, but the girls came. You know why? They all, they all love him because he's kind to them. And he doesn't say nasty things. And kids can be nasty. So they learn them from mum and dad. So the things that I'm teaching you isn't really deep. I haven't taught deep stuff here tonight. I just wanted to tell you that your character is formed by the relationship that you've had with your mum and dad. I think that I'm a wonderful politician. I think that if I was your member, you'd be blessed. And that's what I told my constituents who are rank unbelievers. I just said, you're blessed to have me as your member because I'm faithful to my wife. And if I'm faithful to my wife, I said, I'll be faithful to you and I'll take care of you. And I did just that, which is why the Democratic seat voted me back in. And I've always, I just love that. I just think, you know what? People want to be cared for. They want to be treated right, Pastor. So, hey, you've listened to me for over an hour and uh, Pastor, you can come and close the thing off. And I would, I would pray for you, but this is a sensitive issue. Relationships are always sensitive. And also, underneath all, all of our spirituality, we're nosy parkers. Do you know that word? Nosy parkers. Ooh, they were at the front. What, what have they been doing? And you know, when it comes to relationships, I haven't wanted to do, I don't want to do that. But I do want to pray over you because what I've spoken about, I know that many of you are judging yourself. I don't even know your backgrounds. And you honour your mum and dad till the day they die. Not when you become 21 or anything. Till the day they die, you honour your parents. Always, because your life depends on it. All right? And that's what I'm praying for. So I'm going to pray for you now. And uh, mum and dad, you, those of you that have got young children, what, a, what an enormous responsibility. And, and for you dads, uh, I, I wouldn't rebuke you, but I can tell you on wives' behalf that one of the greatest heartaches that wives have and mothers is that the husbands don't spend time with their children. It's a heartache that mothers share. And um, 
you know what, you want to win points, put points, just general points in the bank with your wife. Spend time with your children. Spend time with them. Quality time. You know, that can be, that can be 10 minutes, but if it's quality, it's really, really important. And um, your children under 12 will always love their mum and they all want to be with their mum. But you know what, dads? You are so vital. You are so vital. And especially girls, I reckon girls need their dads most when they're teenagers. And um, I wish I had have had girls because I thought I would have been a good father to a girl. But I don't. But I do have girls all over the world that I speak into and I pray over. And um, that's what I want to do here tonight. Heavenly Father, uh, you know the hearts of every couple that are here. You know the hearts of every family that's represented here. You know the hearts of the husbands and fathers and of the wives and the mothers. There needs to be decisions made. And they're not the kind of decisions that you can just walk out the front and say, praise the Lord, that's going to happen. These are decisions that have to be made where children realise. Because children know when their dad and mum are interested or not. And so I pray tonight that whatever has been spoken will go deep into the heart of the people who have heard here tonight and decisions will be made. I haven't preached to make anyone annoyed. I have, all I've wanted to do is tell them that their children are precious and valuable and the time and effort that they put into them will be a wonderful fruit as they grow older and become adults. And for those of us who still have parents alive, how important it is for us to still honour them. How important it is to remember that they may not have been trained. They may not have been taught. They just may not have known. Dads may not have known how to talk to their children because they didn't see their father talk. Well, you, you, Holy Spirit, can do a miracle in the lives of the, especially the men here tonight. God, you, you have miraculously put it in, in the heart of every woman to be a mother. I don't genuinely understand that, but I know that it's not natural in a lot of men. They have to have an experience with you that causes them to be loving, gentle, understanding and instructive fathers. And I'm asking that here tonight, the fathers who are present here tonight will have an epiphany with you, will we'll reach out and say, I want to be a better father to my children and be closer to my son, be closer to my daughter and speak into their lives things that need to be spoken, practical as well as spiritual. And I pray that, Heavenly Father, and I release your anointing upon these people. Let them never, ever be the same again tonight. And I ask that prayer to you, Yehovah, in Yeshua's name. Amen.